This programme was produced at and first aired on NPR, Manawatu People's Radio, with support from New Zealand On Air. Kapai Irarangi Tomotu, NPR. Hi, I'm Greg Watson, and welcome to this week's show of Property Matters here on Queen's Birthday Weekend. On the Jubilee, 75 years. Amazing, amazing to have a royal family member as the Queen for 75 years. That's an amazing, amazing effort. Of course, on this show, it's Property Matters. We talk about all things property and what's happening generally, and sometimes... uh, Articles that are associated with housing that affect the market and so forth. Lovely having your company today. I'm Greg Watson and we'll just get into some of the news articles of the day. This one quite good for Manawatu uh, and the country in general. It says, Fonterra announces record opening Farmgate milk price for next season. This has been underpinned by continued strong demand for dairy products and constrained global supply according to Tina Morrison on stuff.co.nz. The cooperative expects to pay farmers between 8.25 and 9.75 per kilogram of milk solids for the season starting next month. The $9 per kilogram midpoint, uh, which farmers are paid off, beats the previous record set this time last year for $8 per kilogram. So the country's largest dairy company has raised its forecast payments to farmers four times a season as tight milk supply underpins demand for New Zealand's biggest export commodity. Disruption in Ukraine, China and Sri Lanka has weighed on recent global auction prices, prompting Fonterra to pull back its forecast earlier this month, but expects those impacts will be short term. Now why is this great for us? Well of course more money coming into the region, more money coming into the area, more money to to spend and the the amounts are staggering that the farming industry brings into the economy. So according to Chief Executive of Fonterra, Miles Hurrell, he says the long-term outlook for dairy remains positive despite recent geopolitical and COVID-19 related events impacting on the demand short term. On the supply side, growth from key milk producing regions is expected to remain constrained as high feed, fertiliser and energy costs continue to impact on production volumes. And these demand and supply dynamics are expected to support dairy prices in the medium to long term. So good news uh, for our local economy there. This article recently in the paper from the relating to the Manawatu uh, council, Manawatu District Council, it says rates rise of 6.99% unjustified burden on ratepayers, the unjustifieds in inverted commas. So it must be an opinion. So it's been labelled as unjustified by residents. There we go. So the Manawatu District Council adopted its 2022-2023 annual plan in April, proposing an overall rates increase of 6.99% to maintain current levels of service. Now that's almost in line with inflation. Uh, some have called it unjustified, but others have demanded a change in the rating system to one more round of public consultation to revise the increase. I know, I believe, well, I believe uh, Palmas North has just brought theirs back a bit. The council blamed added cost pressures caused by inflation, rising fuel prices, compliance costs, and depreciation of assets and insurance for the rate rise. They quote a lady here called Tony Manuel, who lives in Brooks Place and Fielding, said she pays about $2,000 in rates for an empty piece of land. We're, in, we're a family of two paying $4,000 a year for our house and $2,000 for an empty piece of land that I bought just adjacent to our property. 
What on earth has provided different fielding residents and their rates that are higher than many other areas? It's unjustified, she says. And they go through and talk about how um, another, they quote another Halcombe resident, Joseph Hayden, who had moved the small settlement from Masterton and the rates had gone up to about 2100 per year. He said, I moved here because I couldn't afford a property anywhere else close to Masterton or Palmerston North. So while the property values remain stagnant, the rates are continually increasing. Even though it was an increase of about $250, he said it was a good amount for a retired farmer. Fiona Lambert, who lived on Homelands Avenue, will now pay about $4,800 in rates. She says, people choose fielding over Palmer's North because properties are cheaper here. However, the rates are very close to what one pays in a city like Palmer's North. We're feeling the pinch amid, amid rising living costs. So you've really got the, um, of course, with rates going up, this is something that is put into the calculation when banks are considering uh, lending and what your costs might be. On, on purchasing a property. So that means that if the rates have gone up and everything else is going up, it might make it harder for you to be able to service a loan uh, or when applying for a loan, it might be harder to have that accepted. So that's why that article's in there is just um, ex- extra costs on life. So we've got food going up, inflation in general, uh, interest rates as well. Now here's a story from Manawatu Wanganui. This one's saying coastal shipping through Wanganui is set to triple. So the amount of cargo being shipped through Wanganui is set to triple with a new investment to boost coastal shipping around the country. The government has announced a $30 million programme for coastal shipping through the National Land Transport Programme to improve domestic shipping services, reduce emissions, improve efficiency and upgrade the maritime infrastructure. Transport Minister Michael Wood has said the funding is a step towards more sustainable and competitive coastal shipping sector. Four suppliers have been selected to deliver the expanded coastal shipping services. That's Coastal Bulk Shipping, Move International, Swire Shipping and Westland Mineral Sands Company. Wanganui-based Coastal Bulk Shipping will use the funding to buy a second, bigger ship and boost the amount of cargo moving through Wanganui from an average of 20 to 25,000 tonnes annually to 75,000 tonnes. Now why is this good for our area? Well it goes without say that moving of more uh, shipping means more people, more people coming to the area, and uh, and that's good for demand on housing and good for house prices. So that's good, good to know. And uh, the they go on and talk about a, a bunch of the technical side of things there. But like I said, I just wanted to pop that in there because it's it's worthy. It's good to know that uh, these sort of things are happening and happening in our wider region. This question has been posed by oneroof.co.nz. It says, could NZ's average house price hit $2 million by 2032? That's 10 years' time. Don't bet on it, um, but we've got uh, this article here uh, which says there's a lot of chatter amongst Kiwis that property prices double every 7 to 10 years as the housing market goes through a cycle of boom, slump and recovery. Figures from the last 10 years would, on the surface, suggest that there is merit in that theory, with the nationwide median sale price lifting from 389000 in 2020, sorry, 2012 to 875 now. I'll just say that again. So this is in the 10 years from 2012 to 2022. The nationwide median sale price has lifted from 389 to 875 so following that logic, Kiwis could expect to pay close to $2 million for a typical home in 2032. For Auckland buyers, a doubling of the current median sale price of $1.17 million would leave them having to stump up a deposit of half a million dollars. And that's a pretty grim scenario. And 
one that many might think could actually come true, given that the post-COVID boom, some uh, sorry, given that the post-COVID boom, some prices rose forty percent. However, economists think such a future is unlikely. The CoreLogic NZ chief economist Kelvin Davidson doesn't believe in the mythical idea of a property cycle that just happens because it's always happened. It says there's always reason for price rises and price slumps. You've heard me say before that generally house prices double every 10 years. Well, that's just simply based on uh, what history has shown us. But again, he's saying, well, you can't assume that because it's happened in the past, it will happen again. He says that house prices just don't rise of their own accord. They rise because interest rates have fallen or vice versa. And with interest rates already jumping from around 2 to 4% and tipped to rise further, in fact, they have already, Davidson says the next upswing could take a while and could be less vigorous than the boom period that followed the end of the first COVID lockdown. After the global financial crisis in mid-2007, New Zealand property prices fell by about 10% and didn't return to that previous peak until 2012. Now it actually took a lot longer here in Manawatu um, to get up there. It took right up until November 2015 to recover. Uh, and in fact, it does go on to say that. I probably should have just read ahead slightly in this article. Some regions, uh, it says, didn't start climbing to 2015. Hamilton, Tauranga, Wanganui and Dunedin, uh, Manawatu as well, although it doesn't say that in the article. Davidson says it could take a long time for house prices to return to last year's high levels and even longer for them to go beyond that due to higher interest rates, people having biggest debts and affordability being worse. The upswing phase can be big, the downswing phase tends to be slower, but it can last a while. And telltale signs that house prices could be on the rise were the number of real estate listings flatlining or declining, a shift in interest rates and LVR rules loosening, and the harder to measure to quantify, the change in people's mindsets and believing that there was market uh, or value in the market again, he said. I just have a feeling that it's possibly going to take a lot longer than this, he says. And Infometrics chief forecaster Gareth Kiernan didn't think there was any major rush for people to go out and pour a lot of money into property right now. Give it 12 or 18 months and if you have prices uh, and if sorry let me say that again (laughs) when you're trying to quote someone it's quite important you don't trip over all your words so Gareth Kiernan Infometrics chief forecaster we'll just try that again. Give it 12 or 18 months and if prices have come back from their peak by another 10% say then you start to realise it's a bit more of an upside potential there but at the moment there's not a great deal there I almost feel like I don't know why you'd be necessarily rushing into it if there's still some downside on the near term on prices well I could say if you wanted to own your property for a a reasonable period of time it could be okay so Kernan says that while history would show there is such a thing as a property cycle a seven to ten year time frame between trough to trough or peak to peak was a little bit coincidental and he wouldn't bank on it happening the same again He says the main drivers of increasing or decreasing house prices were interest rates and population growth, so a very similar view to Kelvin Davidson. He says it's hard to see conditions where you'd start to see prices pushing up again towards a peak in any near-term scenario. My view is this is probably looking a bit more like the housing boom in the early 70s where it did take a long time for the market to sort of recalibrate and get back onto more reasonable price levels. And given how high house prices were when they peaked in December of 2021, he said there didn't seem to be much scope for house prices to increase much in the next five years. And it could even be after 2032 before they hit new records. So so economists are well known for some pretty um, amazing predictions there. So we'll just see how that one pans out.
of course, with the media, they focus on prices that, that drop, and that's the things that makes for interesting headlines. Another is headlines that relate to people losing money during a housing market downturn. Now, this is uh, an extremely small number of people, yet if you listen to this headline, West Auckland Women's Big Loss in Housing Market Downturn on newsroom.co.nz by Jonathan Milne, you could be um, expecting that this could be one of, of many and it's not really one of many because, again, the banks have factored in uh, when you lend the money that uh, interest rates could go up a couple of percentage points. But if someone is in a situation where they've bought during a high market and they have to sell for reasons outside of, um, I guess, normal market conditions, then that is where, yes, you can lose potentially some money. So this article says that CoreLogic's preliminary figures for April show how sharply house prices have fallen and one vendor has felt the pain worse than anyone. Up to 2.5% of vendors are now losing money when they sell their homes and like the share market, it's all about time in rather than timing. As a supplement to its quarter one pain and gain report, CoreLogic has run a preliminary analysis of April sales for newsroom readers showing the numbers losing money and property have more than doubled as the market enters the second quarter of the year. But let's remember it's a very small percentage. However, they say it's the highest rate of losses for two years that's still low compared with the longer term. At the very least, it's another indicator that the market has passed its peak, says CoreLogic Chief Property Economist Kelvin Davidson. Those residential properties being resold for a loss have been held for a median period of about 1.6 years. The expectation would be that many of these types of short sales will unfortunately reflect changed circumstances such as divorce, Davidson says. And I guess that's a little bit like uh, what I was referring to. If you have to sell, that's not ideal. If you don't have to sell, just hold on to the home. So according to this article, a Henderson Valley house is sold for $75,000 below the purchase price. So nationwide sales figures show the worst loss of the month was suffered by a vendor in Henderson Valley in West Auckland who in November 2020 purchased a very small three-bedroom cottage on 1,588 square metres of native forested land sloping down towards Stony Stream for $1.1 million. Just 18 months later, on April 22, she sold it for $1.025 and that's $75,000 less than she paid. And on paper, it's also a 95% discount on the June 2021 rateable value of 1.12. And that doesn't allow for money she spent renovating and the Real Estate Agents Commission when she sold it. So the question that I would uh, wonder is, did she overpay at the time? But worse still for her morale, that's half a million dollars below the somewhat optimistic $1.5 million homes.co.nz estimate of what it would have sold for just two months earlier though it says more about the unreliability of such pricing sites, which I do agree with. Um, a number of the prices on homes.co.nz that I've noticed got really quite largely inflated there for a while. They're probably now starting return to return to reflect probably where they should be. As Davidson suggests, there are changed circumstances between, behind the short-term buy and sell loss, not so much for the unfortunate vendor as for the property. Anne Hutton from LJ Hooker marketed the property and said the drop in price was essentially an act of God. To understand that, there was a 1 in 100 year event in Henderson Valley back in 2021. We had this huge flood, it took out the Pony Club and went up to Kumio. Total devastation. So that house, from when the lady bought it, had been totally destroyed. It was yellow-stickered by the council. It's been completely rebuilt. We took it back to market because the owner didn't sell 
didn't sell it for that reason. She she was lucky. She actually came into some money and had bought something else. So basically, the house was completely renewed, looked absolutely stunning. But because of the event, I think it probably the end of the day affected the price she was likely to get. So extenuating circumstances. You can see sometimes these articles can uh, exaggerate things a bit. Here's another article from interest.co.nz. It says, bracing for hikes. Nearly half of all mortgage holders are ahead in their payments, but some are struggling. Again, sensationalist sort of headlines. But it says that many of the country's homeowners are bracing themselves for substantial rises in monthly mortgage payments. Some will have already had that happen, and many seem well and ready, according to new industry figures just released. However, some are doing it tough already. New banking industry figures show that at the end of last year anyway, close to half of the country's homeowners with a mortgage were actually ahead with their payments, but a small number were behind. And more people in the latter half of 2021 sought hardship status with their banks, although fewer were actually granted it. Around about 15,500 customers moved from paying interest in principal to just interest only in the last months, six months of 2021. That's just making the repayments a bit easier. The New Zealand Bankers Association has released its latest half-yearly banking insights, which covers the six months to the end of December 2021, using information collected and aggregated from the New Zealand Banking Association's 10 main retail members. That said that about 44% of people with a home loan were ahead on repayments, and that's, uh, that's great, and there's a whole lot that are just on time as well. So there is a small amount. The amount that changed from or changed to principal and interest is around about 1.3%, so not huge. And, uh, and really it's just a, a case, again, of the media reporting probably a little early on some of the sensationalist headlines. Looking now to some of the changes that are um, happening and that have been mooted by the government with regards housing, and this is that you can now have the taller homes on smaller sections, and density rules will help to shape new suburbs. So it says that the government's new housing rules take effect from August, allowing developers to build three homes of up to three storeys each on most sites without the needs for resource consent, which I personally think is uh, a fantastic idea. It is estimated the new rules will, will enable 3,400, that's 12,200 12, additional dwellings to be built in Hamilton alone over the next eight years as the government pushes fast-growing cities to embrace the housing intensification. This is from a, um, obviously a, a Waikato-based article. Yet it's not established just sorry. Yet it's not just established city suburbs that will be impacted with new neighbourhoods tipped to feature three-storey townhouses and more compact builds. The law change will also allow landowners in Auckland, Hamilton, Wellington, Christchurch to build up to three storeys without resource consent. hasn't gone further, so it won't affect Palmerston North Wanganui yet, but I'm hoping it will because we need more housing, we need to house more people. Some say the Kiwi dream is evolving with new ways to achieve it and the developer warns we should be careful where we choose density to avoid a concrete jungle, which is true. Although I've lived overseas where they have really nice areas of housing, low-rise housing like this, which then has common areas and so forth. So in Hamilton, new developments such as Peacock and Rotukauri won't be like suburbs that have seen in the past with a big garden and lemon tree and your single-storey house with a very large garage, Hamilton Mayor Paula Southgate said. But we won't reach our home affordability targets without smaller, denser builds within the overall mix. We need entry-price houses. 
And these create a great uh, example, this is just my words now, not, not the mayor's, to get onto the property ladder, to get onto the market and to gain some equity to then move on to something else. So it's really identifying a need for people for a certain period in life where they can do that. So it just goes on to talk about those in Hamilton. It is something that I'd like to see here in Palmerston North is, uh, I guess, just more more housing in a smaller area. And that's just my view. Of course, Kiwis love the whole idea of having a big yard in their own house, in their own section. This article, just based on the state of the market, uh, says that 12% of properties for sale on Trade Me are listed by unlicensed salespeople. So the Auckland law firm director Jan McNamara wants to see more protections for first home buyers of new build properties. And this article talks about how Trade Me figures show 12% of properties listed in April are from private sellers or developers' sales teams, and neither of which are regulated by the Real Estate Authority. Experts warn buying through these channels reduces buyer protections and can prove more problematic. Bad advice from developer sales teams could result in buyers losing deposits or struggling to get finance, a lawyer warns. So think of it a little bit like buying a used car. You can buy one off um, someone off the street or from a dealer, and you'd like to think that you've got more safeguards from the dealer. So more than one in every 10 properties advertised for sale on Trade Me in April was listed by unregulated salespeople, and that's come from the Trade Me statistics. So reliance on such salespeople, particularly in the new build market, uh, can lead people to receive poor advice, and uh, according to law firm director Jan McNamara. A typical real estate agent must be accredited by the government regulator, the Real Estate Authority, but those selling privately, sales person, people working for developers don't need the REA licence. So how does this pan out? Well, 9% of properties listed by developers on TradeMe, 3% by private sellers, and 88% by agents. McNamara said, I always say that private sales are much more problematic than ones for an agent. Even though agents have a reputation for being difficult and overpaid, they do have to abide by sets of rules which aren't there for private salespeople. McNamara said she recently had a client who was told by a developer's salesperson they did not need finance approval before paying their deposit because approvals only lasted up to 90 days and settlement could take two to three years. McNamara said it was important to get approval early on regardless because it facilitated the checks and balances that banks brought. If a buyer paid their deposit and found they could not get a home loan at completion, they would be in default and they may forfeit their deposit and could be required to cover the developer's costs, which is pretty scary. If a REA certified agent gave some advice, it would be easier for a buyer to bring a claim of misrepresentation against them. The agent could lose their licence to practice. Ray White franchise owner Tom Rawson said there were other unregulated salespeople out there, including what he called property finders, people who approach homeowners by door knocking or letterbox drops and offered to purchase the property without involving an agent. It's often in perceived lower socioeconomic suburbs that we're thought of someone coming along and offering a million dollar for a dollars for a property and no real estate agent fee is appealing. Rawson said it wasn't unusual for these people to flip the property or have another buyer waiting in the wings and the owner to find out they'd missed out on hundreds of thousands of dollars. By comparison, he said REA members were generally required to take a property to the open market and had a fiduciary duty, that's a legal responsibility, to the seller to get the best price. They were also required to disclose any known faults or information that would be important to a buyer, such as where the property was a leaky building, which a private sale doesn't have to do that. In an industry that's unregulated, you can have cowboys out there and you can have people pulling wool over people's eyes and there's no comeback on that.
Rawson said unregulated sellers were a growing problem with many joining the booming market of the last two years. REA Chief Executive Belinda Moffat said REA licensing protected consumer interests where the agent works on behalf of an unrelated vendor. She said the authority did receive occasional inquiries relating to property developers or buying off plans but could only take action if there was a licensed real estate salesperson involved. In cases where there was not, the rights of buyers may be covered by broader commerce legislation such as the Fair Trading Act and Consumer Guarantees Act and contract law principles. But generally speaking, be very careful indeed if you're looking at buying a property uh, literally um, from a private seller or someone who's not licensed. So just quickly, there was an article on stuff. I'd encourage you to look this one up. Esther Taunton says five incredible properties that cost less than a house in Auckland. So New Zealand's housing market is calling, but the average cost of a home in Auckland is still above $1.2 million. So if you've been priced out of the market for uninsulated weatherboard homes in our biggest city, it might be time to consider a castle or private item. Uh, private island, I should say. So there are five incredible properties here. There's a New York apartment at $1.1 million in the middle of Manhattan. And while you won't get a heck of a lot of floor space, uh, it's still a starter apartment, just as you would have in Auckland, and you get a decent chunk of change from $1.2 million. Good-sized living room is hardwood floors, Preston ceilings and decorative fireplace, and the bedroom comfortably fit a queen-size bed and table, and you get to live in New York. How awesome is that? Buy a Canadian island for five hundred and eighty-four and a half thousand, which is a you get an eighty-eight square meter cottage on Rothwell's Island, Ontario. It was built in the nineteen hundreds. Has two bedrooms, a walk-in closet, clawfoot bath, and composting toilet. The main living areas face south. Good thing in the northern hemisphere for nice and light views. And there is a separate nineteen square meter guest cottage sleeping four. Island has two docks and bird life galore, including an occasional bald eagle. But if boats and birds aren't your bag, there is also Wi-Fi. But if island life isn't for you, there's a Scottish castle for sale. A three-bedroom penthouse apartment in Scotland's Le Monde Castle could be yours for about 927000 Built around 1860, the Sandstone Castle sits on 2.4 hectares of communal grounds right on the bonny bonny banks of Loch Lomond. The Swiss Alps has a chalet for $1.1 million if you'd like to go there. So if you're a ski bunny, this is a two-bedroom, two-bathroom home just 10 minutes from the popular Portis du Delay Resort. Sorry, excuse the pronunciation. The property faces Dance du Midi mountain range for views galore and is only a few minutes from the village centre and train station. Partially renovated in 2018, accessible all year round and has potential for expansion. And finally, rather than buying that weatherboard home in Auckland, why not buy a French vineyard for $867,000? This wine estate in Montrichard, three hours from Paris, has 11 hectares of vines, four hectares of cultivated lands, and a 300-square-metre wine cellar, a 165-square-metre storage cellar, and an assortment of workshops and garages. There's also a four-bedroom, two-bathroom farmhouse with a library, office, and two guest bedrooms with separate entrance. While the French capital is a relatively easy drive with castles, bike trails and plenty of places to eat or drink in the surrounding areas, you might never want to leave your new home. So I'll leave you with those thoughts. You've been listening to Greg Watson on Property Matters. You can find this where all good podcasts are found or just Google Greg Watson Property Matters or listen here on npr.nz for the weekly show. It's been lovely having your company. We'll catch up with you next week. 
support this show and others like it by giving a donation. For more information, go to www.mpr.nz forward slash donate.